Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's great to have you here. Today I'm going to take a rather deep dive into the House of Lords. I'm calling this talk the House of Lords. Is it broken? And can it be fixed? And we'll kick this talk off by reminding you of the current structure of the House of Lords and the functions it has, and we'll talk about how those functions have changed slowly, but rather dramatically, over the last century. And that will bring us rather neatly, I hope, into some calls for reform that we've seen in the 21st century. And I'll leave you with what I hope are some provocative and useful questions, which I know my class will be discussing after they've been uh, <laughs> subjected to this lecture. So here we go. Let me begin with some thoughts, not mine, but distinguished. The former Prime Minister David Lloyd George said, Every man has a house of lords in his own head. Fears, prejudices, misconceptions, those are the peers, and they are hereditary. So here is the man of his hour, taking a shot across the bow at the House of Lords, comparing them somehow to our superego. Another prime minister, Clement Attlee, said, quote, The House of Lords is like a glass of champagne that's stood for five days. You don't have to read too far between the lines there to discern that perhaps Clement Attlee believes that that glass of champagne should be dumped down the drain. Tony Benn, who was a leading member of parliament in the 60s and 70s and later went on to serve as home secretary, a giant of his era, said, quote, I don't believe in the hereditary principle in the House of Lords. Imagine going to the dentist, sitting in the chair, and he says, I'm not a dentist myself, but my father was a dentist and his father before him. Now open wide. Now, I'm not sure what Tony Benn would have to say to Oscar Wilde, but Oscar Wilde said, we in the House of Lords are never in touch with public opinion. That makes us a civilized body. And that's one of those questions that I'm going to raise towards the end of this talk. Right? This question of the function of having a rather out-of-touch, sometimes apolitical body. And the final thought about the House of Lords I'd like to share that's hardly my own comes from the great liberal political thinker of his generation, a person after whom we still have a weekly column named in The Economist, Walter Badgett. Badgett said, quote, The cure for admiring the House of Lords is to go and look at it. Now, I will confess to you, as I have in the previous talk on this podcast, that I tended to agree with David Lloyd George and Clement Attlee and Tony Benn and Walter Badgett. But I also took Badgett's advice, and I went to go look at it. And you know what? The opposite was true for me. I went to the House of Lords fully expecting to be disgusted, and I was entirely impressed. I was blown away. For five or six years in a row, I brought students to London, and we would visit the House of Commons on one day, and we would visit the House of Lords on the other. And the quality, and dare I say, the dignity of the debate in the House of Lords was vastly superior to what I saw in the Commons year after year after year. So it turns out for me, Mr. Badgett, that the cure for decrying the House of Lords was to go and look at it. For I did, and I was duly impressed. Listen, Lords reform goes to the heart about the debates about democracy. 
It's an institution with a long and illustrious past, but a rather uncertain future. And today we're going to be talking about the potential futures of the House of Lords. But before we do, I just want to remind you of the functions of the Lords. And this is just by way of reminder for those of you who have been tuning into the Cocoa Pod. The House of Lords functions to initiate legislation, except for financial bills. Financial bills are always initiated in the Commons. The House of Lords functions to delay legislation for up to a year, but financial legislation they can only delay for a month. The Lords functions as a body for expertise. Titles of Lordship are bestowed for achievement. And there's something to be said for expertise. And that expertise comes out in questioning, right? One of the functions of the House of Lords is to question the government's ministers and to scrutinize the government, right? The Lords are often referred to as a second pair of eyes. They make around 2,000 amendments to legislation every year, and almost all of those are accepted. And so questioning and scrutiny and debate and slowing things down, that's what the Lords is for. They don't have the power to veto, and they are clearly the second chamber. They have a secondary role. They have a secondary function. But that function is important because things in British government can move very fast, for better and for worse. And perhaps the most important function of the House of Lords is to slow down what Lord Halisham called the elective dictatorship. Because once in power, an elected government is nearly always able to pass legislation, right? Because we have this fusion of the executive and legislative branch. And the prime minister, by their very nature, has a majority in the house. Things get done real fast. And the entire Westminster system is kind of stacked against confidence votes. We don't have them very often. And that's in large part because party whips ensure that the government's legislative proposals are supported at every step along the way in the House of Commons. And so as we begin to think about the House of Lords, seriously, we need to think about to what extent we think there needs to be a permanent structure in British government there to slow things down, to scrutinize, to ask questions, to lend a second set of eyes? And the answer is probably yes. But then that begs the question of, does it need to be 800 people? Do some of those people need to inherit their titles? Do they have to be called the House of Lords? Do they have to serve for life? And these are the questions we're going to dive into. But before we do, I just want to share with you some of the similarities that the Lords and the Commons have. Right? They both scrutinize legislation. They both offer healthy and hearty debate. They both have select committees where members develop expertise. They both have whips. They both have a speaker. The speaker in the House of Lords is called the Lord Chancellor as opposed to the Speaker of the House. And they both, in their own way, serve as a check on the executive. But the Lords is substantially different from the Commons. Members of the House of Lords are unelected. Full stop. This is an unelected chamber. And there are those of you who are listening 
who automatically, when hearing that, are allergic to the notion of the House of Lords. It's worth pointing out, perhaps, that the upper house of the United States, the Senate, was unelected until 1913. And I, for one, am not entirely convinced that the Senate is a better place now than it was in 1913. But I could probably be easily persuaded on that. I hardly want to turn back time to 1913. So that's one difference. right? The upper house is unelected. Another difference is that it is decidedly the second chamber, and it decidedly has a secondary role. And part of that role is being impartial. The House of Lords is less party-oriented. It's less party-disciplined. It's less political. And unlike the House of Commons, members of the House of Lords are unpaid. They can eat lunch tax-free. That's their perk. And another substantial difference with the House of Commons is that the House of Lords has bishops and archbishops, and there's an argument to be made that there's really no place for people of the cloth in high-ranking political office in the 21st century democracy, if for no other reason than that there are no imams and no rabbis and no monks permanently seated in the House of Lords. So we have some substantial similarities with the Commons, scrutinizing, debating, developing committees of expertise, having whips, checking the executive, but we have these substantial differences as well. And I guess what we need to think about is, does the House of Lords, given its current functions, warrant maintenance? You know, currently the House of Lords has 800 members, and that is an unwieldy number. You know, maybe you need a second set of eyes. I could be persuaded by that. But does it need to be 800 sets of eyes? <laughs> of those 800, 682 are life peers. These people are appointed by the queen on the advice of the prime minister. And usually the peerships are awarded due to distinguished public service. You have people who have devoted their lives to academia, to the National Health Service, to the National Rail Service. These are some of the best engineers doctors and hospital administrators, public servants and politicians of their generation. If you look at the resumes of the average life peer, you might just come to the conclusion that these are exactly the type of people that we want to have in government. Not that the resumes of members of the House of Commons are somehow unimpressive at all, but the life peers in the House of Lords are some of the greatest minds of their generations deeply committed to public service. And I'll tell you, it's tempting to want to have them in government, scrutinizing legislation, debating, and slowing things down where appropriate. Okay, so we have 800 total. The vast majority of them, 682, are life peers. We have 92 hereditary peers. These people have inherited their titles. Currently, all of the hereditary peers are men. Uh, this is a dying breed, literally. And we have 26 lords spiritual. These are the senior bishops from the Church of England. And while I already raised the question about whether this violates the sacred wall between church and state, the other side of that is the lords spiritual offer a sense of tradition, a sense of humility, and a sense of continuity. So those are the current structures and functions of the House of Lords. But it's not always been like this. And I want to briefly walk you through a timeline of Lord's reform. 
and then take a deeper dive into some of the contemporary proposals for Lord's reform. So in 1911, the Parliament Act was passed, and this is landmark legislation that really limited the House of Lords. 110 years ago, it was determined that the House of Commons can pass money bills without the Lord's advice or consent. This changed the game. It took the Lord's grubby paws off the purse strings and gave the lower house total sovereignty over the purse. And once the Lords lost their sovereignty over financial and economic decisions in the United Kingdom, their role clearly became secondary. A generation later, coming out of World War II, another Parliament Act was passed, and this limited the delaying powers of the Lords to one year. It used to be that the Lords could just pocket things in perpetuity, but now they can only delay legislation for a year, and again, economic legislation for only a month. In 1958, the first female peers arrived to the House of Lords, begging the question, what took so long? although I'm afraid we know the answer to that already. And in the 1970s and 80s, the Labour Party began to put on their platform advocacy for the abolition of the House of Lords. Of course, throughout most of the 1980s, they could have put whatever they wanted on their platform because nobody was voting for them anyway. Margaret Thatcher and the Tories were thoroughly dominating politics in the 1980s. And the labor platform of abolishing the House of Lords was really a show of their desperation to get some votes. And when the Labor Party began to become a serious party again in the early 1990s, they abandoned their desire for abolition in favor of reform. And when Labor came to power, after Blair and Labor's landslide election in 1997, Tony Blair abolished all but 92 of the hereditary peers. And so that changed the tenor of the debate quite a bit. And while Blair was thinking about the House of Lords, he asked Lord Wakeham to put together a report. And the Wakeham report, which we'll discuss in a moment here, recommends a largely appointed chamber. And then in the last 20 years, we see a lot of movement in the discussions about the House of Lords on both sides of the aisle. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. We have a white paper in 2001, another white paper in 2007. We'll talk about the proposals of those white papers. In between those white papers, the Queen gave a speech where she advocated an end to hereditary peership. In 2009, as we've discussed previously, the law lords were abolished and the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom was established. In 2011, there was a Lord's Reform Bill published and debated in both chambers. We'll discuss that. And in 2017, which was the last time British government took a serious look at the House of Lords, since which time Brexit and Corona have derailed all discussions of the House of Lords, Lord Fowler issued a report, which we'll get into. Okay, so let's start with the Wakeham Report. It was released in January of 2000. So as we entered a new century... Lord Wakeham, who was a conservative member of parliament in the House of Commons, who retired to become the director of Enron and later the chancellor of Brunel University, he was asked by the Labour government to head a royal commission to investigate possible reforms to the Lords. Right? So this is a bipartisan effort here. Right? You have the Labour government asking a conservative former member of parliament, now a conservative member of the House of Lords, to look into 
how the Lords could possibly be reformed, the Wakem Report issued 132 wide-ranging proposals, and its main recommendations were these. First, a largely appointed House of about 450 to 550 members, that there would be like an independent commission to appoint members, and this would remove the prime ministerial patronage component of it. The Wakem Report did not recommend an elected chamber. So perhaps unsurprisingly, Lord Wakem didn't want his beloved chamber to become prey to electoral politics. Instead, he advocated 15-year terms, non-renewable. The Wakem Report said that 30% of the members of this new House of Lords should be women, that there should be quote-unquote fair representation of ethnic minorities, and that there should be broader religious representation in this second chamber. This report was the beginning of a series of conversations that got catalyzed by a 2001 white paper. Now, perhaps you've heard of a white paper. If you haven't, government white papers allow the government an opportunity to gather feedback before it formally presents a policy as a bill. So you can think of it like a test run of a bill. And the white paper said, quote, a credible and effective second chamber is vital to the health of Britain's democracy. Our mission is to equip the British people with a parliament and a constitution fit for the 21st century, end quote. This 2001 white paper said that the Lord should remain subject to the preeminence of the commons and that the hereditary peers should be removed. Much like the Wakem report, there was a clear statement about the need for greater representation of women and ethnic minorities. And this white paper suggested that there should be 120 directly elected members to represent the regions of the United Kingdom and 120 nonpartisan members appointed by an appointments commission. And then there would also be large numbers of members appointed by political parties. Large numbers is a bit unclear here. So we have an elected and an unelected component. We have a politicized and a rather apoliticized component. And in 2003, both the Lords and the Commons debated the proposals of the White Paper. And the results are interesting, both in the Lords and in the Commons. Let's talk about the Lords debate over the White Paper. In the Lords, 335 members were for a fully appointed chamber and 110 were against a fully appointed chamber. Something like 80% of the House of Lords wanted to maintain a fully appointed chamber. They wouldn't even debate or vote on whether the House of Lords should be abolished, and I don't blame them. In the Commons, it was a little bit more mixed. 323 members of the House of Commons voted for a 100% appointed House of Lords, and 245 members of the Commons voted against a 100% appointed chamber. So there's some real division in the House of Commons over this issue. When the House of Commons was asked if they would support a 100% elected chamber, it was 272 to 289. That's basically a 50-50 split over a fully elected chamber. And I'd imagine the argument is, why do we need two fully elected chambers? But this is the part that stands out to me. Whereas the Lords refused to even discuss, let alone vote on, abolishing the Lords, abolishing their beloved chamber, the Commons did. And 172 members of the House of Commons were for abolishing the upper chamber. 390 were against. 
So the overwhelming majority of the House of Commons are for keeping a second chamber, but they're rather split about how the members of that chamber should be selected. So in part because the majority of lords don't seem to want to be reformed at all, and because the House of Commons seemed really split on the matter, more research needed to be done. And in 2007, another white paper was published after a series of cross-party working group discussions led by Jack Straw, the Labor Home Secretary. And this 2007 white paper suggested that there should be elected members and appointed members, and the members appointed should be appointed by the Statutory Appointments Commission. And the elected members would be elected under a regional list system. And all elections and all appointments would take place on a five-year cycle with one-third of the House admitted on a 15-year single non-renewable term. A third of this House of Lords would be relieved of their seat every five years, and they would have a 15-year non-renewable term. I mean, there's something appealing about that, right? Oh, and about the life peers. They wouldn't be forced to retire, but they would be given a nice redundancy package if they would choose to retire. So again, in 2007, in considering this white paper, both the Commons and the Lords debated and discussed and ultimately voted on the proposals in the 2007 white paper. And in the House of Commons, 375 members were for a 100% appointed House of Lords, 196 against. So again, in the House of Commons, we have a two to one margin against a fully appointed chamber. And the Lords, 361 to 121 in favor of a 100% appointed chamber. Neither the Lords nor the Commons wanted a 50-50, so 50% elected and 50% appointed. Members of the House of Commons were against that by a 3-to-1 margin. Members of the House of Lords were against it by a 10-to-1 margin. Nobody wants a 50-50 chamber. And the members of the House of Lords weren't willing to vote on whether... Britain should retain a bicameral system, and they weren't willing to vote as to whether the hereditaries should be removed. But the Commons, of course, did vote on that, and the overwhelming majority of the House of Commons voted to retain the bicameral system, but to remove the hereditary peers. A lot of the hereditary peers are rather old. I think a lot of members in the House of Lords would just as soon let them live out their lives. You know, evolution, not revolution. So this debate is happening in 2007, and in 2007, the Blair government is in terrible shape. Tony Blair's decision to join the United States in Iraq and the ways in which he did that in particular, in addition to some scandals plaguing his administration, made him persona non grata among the political elites and the British populace. He stepped down in favor of his Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, and the issue of Lord's reform went sort of quiet for a couple years under Gordon Brown. And in 2010, as you recall, a coalition government was established, a Lib Dem conservative coalition government. And the Lib Dem manifesto was very clear that brought into office, they would advocate for a fully elected House of Lords. And the conservative manifesto demanded a mainly elected Lords. They wanted 120 elected members and 30 appointed members and the bishops. So there's that. And the Lib Dems and the Conservatives put together a Lord's Reform Bill 
and these were debated in 2012. My students and I were there in the chamber of the House of Lords on the day of this debate. We were honored to be there. It was quite exciting. And on this day, the Lords debated the following proposal. A 300-member hybrid house of which 80% are elected. So we're talking about a much smaller house, 800 to 300. 80% elected, 20% appointed, and some of that 20% would be the Church of England bishops. The members of this reformed House of Lords would sit for a single non-renewable term of 15 years. The elections for the House of Lords would take place at the same time as elections to the Commons. But unlike the House of Commons, the members of the House of Lords would be elected by proportional representation. You could hear the Lib Dem voice in that, right? The year before, they had just lost their referendum for an alternative vote system when 67% of the British population voted against proportional representation. But they thought, well, maybe in the House of Lords we can get proportional representation. So this 2012 reform bill really changes the structure of the House of Lords, but it doesn't really change the functions. Indeed, the 2012 reform bill would leave the House of Lords with the precise powers that it had. So this 2012 reform bill is terribly interesting. And there was, as you would imagine, some healthy and hearty debate both in the Commons and the Lords. But those debates were short-lived. Britain was really struggling through the financial crisis. A year later, the country was gearing up for the Scottish independence referendum, which ultimately failed in 2014. Negotiations with the European Union were becoming challenging. And frankly, the majority of British people weren't that interested in fundamentally restructuring the House of Lords. But the members of the House of Lords were going on with their business, armed with the anxiety of a rather uncertain future. And so the Lord Speaker himself, Lord Fowler, put together a committee in 2017, and he recommended a 600-member chamber, 15-year terms, at least 20% of the Lords would be independents or crossbenchers, and no political party would have a majority in this House of Lords. And the party appointments would be aligned with the results of the last general election in the United Kingdom. And the Lords debated Lord Fowler's report, and nothing has been done. So that's where we are now. After 20 years of fascinating debate, the British people have a second chamber that remains unelected and unreformed. Well, what does the British electorate think of all of this? A YouGov poll from January 2020 asks, Thinking about the future of the House of Lords, which of the following would you most like to see? 15% of Brits want an appointed chamber. 28% of Brits want a partially or wholly elected chamber. 22% want the Lords abolished entirely. 4% want something else. And 31% don't know. By the way, I'm with the 31%. I don't know. Maybe you all know. I don't know. So what exactly do you do when the electorate is that divided on the issue? In another YouGov poll from March of 2021, respondents were asked, do you think the House of Lords should or should not continue to have places for Church of England bishops? 16% should, 53% should not, 31% don't know. 
less division there. Do you think the House of Lords should or should not continue to have places for hereditary peers, i.e. lords chosen from among those who have inherited their peerages? 10% said they should continue to have places for hereditary peers. 63% said they should not. 27% don't know. So we're seeing consistently that about a third of British people have no idea what to do with the lords. But we're also seeing that a substantial portion of the British population want to do away with the hereditary peers. And there's the fast and the slow way to do that. And that seems to be the direction this is going. I want to leave you with a number of questions about the House of Lords. And like I said, if you have the pleasure of being in my class, we'll be discussing these. The first of which is, what's most democratic? And what weight should the implications on democracy bear? In March of 2012, Lord Norton said, quote, electing the second chamber is not self-evidently the democratic option. By dividing accountability, it can undermine the capacity of the people to hold government to account and can sweep away the very benefits that the present system delivers. So I ask you, what is the most democratic option? And is that necessarily the best option? Here's another question for you. If both houses of parliament are wholly or largely elected, will the House of Commons lose its primacy? And if so, like what's the implication of all of this on the balance of power between the legislative and executive branches? Could there potentially be gridlock between these two elected houses? Do we want that? Surely there's a risk of that. What is the risk-reward-benefit of one wholly elected house and one wholly or largely elected house? Another question. Listen, shouldn't expertise and achievement count for something in politics? What's your risk-reward analysis for having distinguished, accomplished people be appointed to positions of power in a political system? And if you believe that expertise and achievement and appointment are all positive things, well, how many people should be appointed? Like, how big should the Lords be? Look, I'm going to go out on a limb here. 800's too big. You can't even fit 800 people in the chamber. Not even close. I was there in 2011 when the Lords were debating Lords reform. It was the day that most Lords showed up for debate that year. It was pretty cool to be in the chamber. And I was much more comfortable in the benches in the chamber than the Lords were on the floor of the chamber because there weren't enough seats for them. Not that the architecture should determine the number of lords we have, but 800 is way too big. 500? 300? 150? The U.S. Senate's 100? And the population of the United States is more than five times that of Britain? Yeah, maybe the number doesn't even matter. I'm not sure. And maybe it doesn't matter what it's called. But there are a lot of Brits who demand that the name should be changed. I'm pretty sympathetic to that. What should we call this chamber? I think that's a fun discussion to have. Do we have to call it the House of Lords? I don't know, the House of Assembly? The Council? The Senate? There's got to be more creative solutions to this. I know, I know, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. What's in a name? A lot when the name is the House of Lords, right? And then, like, let's assume that a substantial portion of this new House of Lords or the Senate or the Council or whatever we want to call it 
should be elected. How should they be elected? Should it be by proportionate representation? Or should it be a first-past-the-post single-member district plurality rule, like we have in the Commons? Maybe an alternative vote system? You know, that stuff can get interesting, too. But maybe we should wrap it up by asking the big question. Like, why not just abolish the second house? You know, unicameral legislatures can work just fine. Look, half the world's states are unicameral. Even the devolved governments in the UK are unicameral. Why shouldn't Parliament be unicameral? What's the best reason to not abolish the second house? And what are the best reasons to abolish the second house? Like, does this tradition of the House of Lords warrant preservation? I don't know. I mean, I'm not convinced it's broken. And if it isn't broken, don't fix it. But maybe it's broken. And maybe it warrants repair. Maybe it warrants abolition. I don't know. Do you know who else doesn't know? The British people. <laughs> Deep divisions among the British people deep divisions among the British political class. And until the British people and British politicians move towards something like a consensus on this matter, I don't expect much will be done with the House of Lords. And of course, in the wake of Brexit itself, to say nothing of the implications of Brexit and the relationships with Northern Ireland and Scotland, and in the wake of COVID, and whatever economic price we're going to have to pay for it, I don't expect that serious discussions about the House of Lords are going to be entertained anytime soon in British politics. But I do thoroughly believe that the questions about the House of Lords cut to the core of what the British system seeks to stand for. So I hope that you make time to think seriously about these questions. I should tell you here two important things before I sign off. The first of which is that my lecture notes for this talk are available to you in the show notes of this here podcast. It might be worth flipping through my PowerPoint in case there was anything you missed or if you want to take a more concentrated look at some of the data I was discussing. Surely when we're discussing data, it's best to feast your eyes on it. And I'd also like to remind you that if you're not my student, but you are a regular listener to the Kobo Pod, I cordially invite you to head over to my Buy Me a Coffee page and throw a couple bucks into the kitty to help to keep the Kobo Pod going strong. Of course, you don't have to, but if you have the means to support independent creators, and if you benefit from this here independent creation, your support will be greatly appreciated. But much more importantly, I wish you health, I wish you wellness, I hope you're thriving despite these funky times, and I look forward to talking with you soon.